Part Three, Section Three, of the Sinking of the Merrimack by Richmond Pearson Hobson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three: Imprisonment in Morro Castle, Section Three, containing supplies from the fleet, an official inquiry, thoughts of escape, under fire from the American fleet, inventing a plan of attack, after the bombardment. Before the captain left, the box and bags came. The box was one of my galvanized iron carling boxes. The bags were the regular bags of the men from the New York and the Iowa, with special bags made up from the stores of the New York for the others, all carefully prepared and marked. Charette and Montague were sent for, and came and examined the bags, and we made a list of the articles needed and not kept in the bags, such as pipes, toothbrushes, etc., the captain took the list, and the articles came by the next courier from Santiago, being paid for upon delivery. I asked the captain if it could not be arranged to allow my men to wash their clothes, and to allow one of them to come in to see me every day, and make known their needs, and give account of the wounded men. Both concessions were granted by the governor of the Moro. Charette and Montague were still with me when the captain left. The sight of the bags seemed to make them as happy as children, and while getting the bags together they talked about the marvelous escape in coming in, and spoke in a touching way of having been brought through. One can scarcely imagine the exquisite joy the box and bags brought us, coming direct from our friends and comrades, who, though within sight, seemed impassably separated. It was like receiving a cablegram from a dear one across the sea some message which in spite of the vast gulf of separation still holds as it were the warmth and breadth of kindness and affection when the men were gone i opened my box and found its contents most carefully and thoughtfully prepared the books plans and articles which i had left in it had been taken out and in their stead were a service dress uniform a white uniform and extra trousers and other apparel with a shaven outfit and other toilet articles complete. It was touching to see that where my own things could not be found, my messmates had sent theirs. One of them, who sat near me at table, had recently passed a birthday, and his wife had sent him as a present a fine new outfit of carefully chosen underwear, the very thing for the climate. He had taken me into his stateroom and had shown the articles to me with pride and enthusiasm, and I saw how much he prized them as coming from her. There they were in my box. I shifted into uniform at once, blue blouse and white trousers, and this uniform I wore throughout. I returned the clothing of Captain Acosta with a message of compliments and thanks, the messenger bringing back from him a kindly note of acknowledgment, together with the garments I had left behind. The men's borrowed articles were similarly returned, and their discarded ones brought back, from which they vainly tried to wash out the coal dust and oil. The forenoon of Saturday, June 4th, passed without incident. The surgeon came after making his rounds and reported the men's wounds as healing rapidly. About two o'clock in the afternoon, while I was seated in the rocker just inside the door, gazing out over the fleet, an official with a stern look appeared and as I made a movement to rise, with an expression of hauteur, waved his hand and said I need not rise. I rose, however, and offered him a chair, which he declined. 
he was followed by another august-looking official whose mouth seemed hermetically sealed and who carried paper pen and ink and he in turn by a third who addressed me in english that official is a juez de instruction the judge of instruction and he paused as if to see the effect of this announcement this is the secretario and i am the official interpreter well, i am sure i am happy to meet you gentlemen will you not be kind enough to take seats i replied placing chairs to the front the secretary took his chair set it alongside the table and arranged his paper and ink without a word and the judge and the interpreter finally taking chairs we all sat down and i waited for them to take the initiative the judge spoke to the interpreter who turning to me said that the judge had come to examine me and gave me fair warning to make my answers full and accurate i said that i did not doubt that the proceeding was entirely regular but that i should be indebted if before the questions began he would be kind enough to explain to me under whose orders they came and what was the object and nature of the questions he answered that they came under the orders of the commander of the port and would question me as to the vessel that had come in on friday morning i asked who the commander of the port was and from whom he received his authority he replied that the commander of the port was the officer charged with all the affairs of the harbor and that he received his authority from the captain-general the captain-general receiving his authority from the government at madrid i asked them if admiral cervera who had captured me and the british consul who was charged with the business of my government knew of the proceeding the judge who had shown signs of irritation then burst out at me direct he did not know whether admiral cervera and the british consul knew of the matter and he did not care he did not intend to have his authority questioned he came to ask questions not to be questioned he had never seen such a prisoner and he rose to his feet in wrath i rose at the same time and faced him and told him he should have intelligence enough to know and those who sent him should have intelligence enough to know that the men who brought the merrimac in could not be intimidated or coerced into answering unauthorized or impertinent questions he said he would return and report that i refused to answer his questions i replied that he did not seem to recognize that he had asked no questions the defiance seemed to cool him off and i suggested that he ask his questions and i would tell him in each case whether i declined to answer or not that i was sure it would only give me pleasure to answer those that were proper he came over and sat near the secretary and began the secretary copying the questions word for word the interpreter translating word for word what is your name what is your rank and occupation how old are you where were you born where have you lived are you single or married etc i answered each question in turn the interpreter translated my answers word for word while the secretary wrote them down when the identification questions were over the next question was as follows what was the object of the vessel coming into the harbor on friday morning the third of june and under whose authority were you acting i answered that the vessel came in under the authority of the commander-in-chief of the united states forces off santiago de cuba and then asked for paper and pencil and drafted the following additional answer 
without in the slightest manner questioning the authority and the regularity of this interrogation i must respectfully decline to answer in any way the first part of the question given until i have been informed by admiral Severa, by whose forces i was captured and also by the english consul who has been named to transact the business of the united states in the city of santiago de cuba that they have been informed of this interrogation and of the nature of the question itself and then i added the request that my men also be not subjected to question until after the receipt of such information i superintended the translation into spanish as the secretary took it down from the interpreter while withholding the information the answer would make it difficult for the judge to make out a case of defiance of any legitimate authority the judge, in the meantime, had entirely changed his attitude. He ceased asking questions and began a pleasant conversation, saying that he lived under the same roof as the British consul, who was a capital fellow. He rose, and we walked up and down, conversing. He said that he put aside his official capacity and asked if I had any objection to telling him personally if the vessel had come in without a pilot. I answered that it had. The difficulties of navigation seemed to strike him most. He had not seen the firing. "'Will you not shake hands as man to man?' he asked, and I gave him a hearty clasp. "'I, too, am a naval officer,' he added, and have been detailed to this duty. When the secretary was through writing, he also unbent, and the interpreter joined in, and on leaving the three were full of kind words. Footnote. The judge proved to be Lieutenant Jose Mueller y Pejero, second in command of the Spanish naval forces of the province of Santiago. The secretary was Lieutenant Dario Laguna. End of footnote. The interrogation was never taken up again, though General Linares seemed to have been displeased with the result of it, for the next day he caused Admiral Cervera and the British consul each to write me an official letter informing me that he was in supreme command in santiago and that he had the complete direction of the matter of the prisoners the judge did not go to the men's cell but various persons asked them questions charette who speaks french being called up as spokesman in one case a major with imperious air and stern voice of command asked what was the object of our coming in charette drew himself up and said in a firm voice in the american navy it is not the custom for a seaman to know or to ask to know the object of his superior officer the major was so much impressed that he stopped asking questions and offered charette a cigar the day passed without further incident except in visits of courtesy from officers as on the previous day having occasion to cross the courtyard i took new observation as to the chances of escape but it was as hopeless as in the cell, for a sentry accompanied me, and the guards occupied the entrance, while on all the other sides the walls went down to great depths. When I would pass near my men's cell, they would look out at me through the barred door. As I went by, the soldiers sitting near would rise and salute with as much respect as for their own officers, if not more. They had probably been impressed by the visits paid to me. With the strict watch kept, it was evident that there could be but little, if any, hope of escape. Sunday, June 5th, passed like Saturday. Monday morning, June 6th, came in overcast. 
Early coffee had been served, and I was sitting back from the door when, with a whiz and a crash, came the sharp crack of an exploding shell, followed by the vibrating peal of an eight-inch gun from which it was fired. Another whiz and crash and crack and peal, another and another, and then came the king of projectiles, a thirteen-inch, the air screeching and crackling as if vitrified. I knew at once that a general bombardment had begun, and hastily examined the cell as to its protective features. The brick and mortar of the walls and the debris of the roof were more to be feared than the projectiles and their actual fragments. At the first shot, the sentry, as if he'd been previously instructed, quickly closed the door, bolted and locked it, and ran away. I concluded that the splinters from the door would be preferable to the brick and mortar from the wall. I pulled the table and the washstand in front of the door, end on, and stood the galvanized iron box up on its side against the front end of the table, a little back from the door, to catch any splinters from it. Then I crawled through the legs of the table and lay face down, with my head just behind the box in the direction of the firing. The table and washstand together were long enough to cover my head, body, and part of my legs from fallen debris, and the box screened the door. The principal danger was from blows of brick and mortar that might be hurled obliquely by entering projectiles, and from the whole cell or wall beneath being blown out by a thirteen-inch projectile and falling and crumbling down the precipice. My men, I knew, were less exposed, being further back and down. The situation was simple, and nothing remained but to await developments. I knew what good marksmen our gunners were, and did not doubt that they would make quick work of the exposed parts of the Moro. The thought was scarcely formulated when a shock came that made the great mass tremble to its foundation. A heavy projectile had struck the wall facing the sea, and penetrating had exploded. While the pile was still vibrating, a sea swell swept into the caverns below and sent up a great hollow, hungry roar. A flood of bitter thoughts passed over me. This, then, is the Spanish idea of honorable warfare, to place us here and make our own men the executioners. Then I began to study the phenomenon with intense interest, locating by sound the vessels and the targets at which they were firing. It soon became evident that the batteries to the eastward and westward of the entrance were the principal targets, and that they returned the fire, though there appeared to be another target farther to the eastward. From time to time the Moro itself would receive a shell, but it was not a principal target, and I concluded finally that the Moro, which did not answer the fire, would not be attacked till after the batteries were silenced, and therefore decided I would be justified in getting out from under the table to examine the phenomena from the window, to return as soon as the morrow should become a target. So I came out, placed the cot into position, drew myself up, and looked out. What sublimity of sight and sound! Our projectiles seemed like animated creatures in a wild chase, seething and screaming with rage, tearing to fragments everything they could touch in their mad flight, and keeping up a cloud of dust and gas about the battery. The thirteen-inch projectile seemed to have a dignity all its own, as though aware of its mighty power. Exploding, it would raise a great yellow cloud of earth and debris, sending forked shafts of gas out and up for a hundred feet, while for many seconds afterward the fragments would continue to drop about the morrow and in the water of the entrance. The first panoramic glance showed that the enemy was not replying, while it showed that the Reina Mercedes was on fire. 
but I had scarcely begun the study of particulars when a projectile whizzed overhead, and another struck the morrow with full force. They have begun on the morrow, I thought, and jumped down and crawled under the table. The fire seemed to slacken for a moment. Then the enemy opened, and again the fire set in strong against the Socapa sea battery, and I came out and climbed to the window once more, in time to see the crews of the enemy's guns leave them and run to a pit in the rear. Then I watched for the next lull. Sure enough, up they came again and fired away. Then our guns reopened in full force, and again the crews retreated to the pit. This occurred over and over, and then I realized, even more than in the bombardment of San Juan, that ships cannot destroy shore batteries without coming into machine-gun range. It is necessary, actually, to strike the gun itself in order to put it out of action. I saw some of our shells literally bury guns with dirt, and yet do virtually no injury. Our marksmanship was excellent. Splendid line shots that tore up the shrubs and earth along the whole front of the battery. But I did not see a single gun disabled, and every time we would slacken, the Spaniards would come up and fire away. I understood how they could thus make the vaunted last shot. While absorbed in watching the Socapa southwest battery, a projectile struck the roof just over my head, exploded, and carried a pile of brick and mortar along, dropping it into the water. Once more I took to the table, only to come forth again after a few moments' reassurance, stopping this time to look through the small barred window of the door. The ships, however, were too close in to be seen, and there were only two men in the courtyard down by the door of the cell by my men. I climbed up again and became absorbed in the firing. I saw one projectile explode on the bow of the Reina Mercedes, which was already on fire. I wondered at the time if Captain Acosta were there, as he had told me it was his special station. Another struck far over across Smith Key, just in front of the Vizcaya. Another struck just in front of the Merrimack's foremast, close by a boat at the middle of the boom, made up of spars and chains, which the enemy had constructed from Smith Key to Churuca Point as an obstruction. Footnote. This boom was just above the sunken Merrimack, and was composed of two lines of spars and chains. The spars end on and break in joint. I had first noticed it on the morning of our adventure from the catamaran soon after dawn. End of footnote. Several, one of them a 13-inch, hit Charuca Point, which was apparently mistaken by our gunner for Punta Gorda. Many continued to pass over my cell, and I wondered if our ships were trying high-angle fire over the Moro into the harbor beyond. Finally, one struck apparently in the cell next beyond mine on the same level, and for the third time I took to my barricade. This was the last time, however, for I felt that it was important to make full observation of the enemy's defenses, as it would probably be the only chance by daylight, and that I would be justified in remaining at the window until it was clearly demonstrated that the fleet had turned full on the morrow. While looking this time, I saw men come out from beyond Socapa, near the Reina Mercedes, and run along the path near the water to the batteries on the slopes. These were so effectually concealed that only when the men came out was I able to locate the pieces. Probably these were reserved for vessels that might attempt to run in, and it was because they did not wish our vessels to find their locations that they did not fire out of the entrance, even those that could. There must have been a false alarm of a vessel starting in, for the men came running along the path. 
Then one of our vessels must have discovered them, for soon there was a burst of shrapnel sweeping the shoreline, and before many minutes the men ran back more rapidly than they came out. The bombardment continued thus for about three hours, and afforded me ample time to impress on my memory the exact location of all the guns and an exact picture of the surrounding topography, and instinctively I began to evolve plans for taking the western side of the entrance, landing in the direction of Cabanas, advancing and placing artillery on the ridge beyond Socapa, opening upon the sea battery from the flank and rear, and making a night assault on all the positions of Socapa, coming down from above on those of the slopes, extending the operation to Borden the Reina Mercedes from the starboard side, from which the guns had been removed, and destroying her if she could not be held under the fire of the enemy from Punta Gorda and the fleet. I believed that the battery to the eastward of the Moro could be similarly taken from the rear. The work would have to be done quickly to avoid the massing of Spanish troops to cut off the advance, and in the case of the Moro side such reinforcements could be sent down rapidly from the city. On each side the guns would probably have to be destroyed and then abandoned. The main operation, the entrance of the fleet, might begin at daybreak, and I set to work on the details of its entrance and of the tactics necessary to destroy the enemy's fleet most effectively. Finally the firing ceased. I came down quietly, after closing my eyes several times to be sure that I could picture the scene with accuracy. I pulled the cot back, put the table and washstand and box in place, put on a clean pair of trousers, and was sitting unconcernedly rocking when the sentry returned and opened the door. Soon I saw the soldiers coming in, begrimed and fagged out, showing that the garrison had manned the eastern battery. Sponges and rammers were brought in, and I noticed that they were all for muzzle-loading guns. In vain I looked to see any gear from a breech-loader. The two guns nearest the Moro on the Socapa were breech-loaders, which appeared to be about six-inch, carrying the regular ship form of shield, and I concluded that they had been taken from the starboard side of the Mercedes. The guns on the slope of Socapa were so well concealed that it was difficult to determine just what guns they were. One, high up, had its barrel extending beyond a mask of brush and seemed to be a four-inch. The main point with these guns, however, was their position, and after the continued observation I believed I could lead an assaulting party to them even on a dark night. The kitchen, being on an exposed side, had been abandoned during the bombardment, and luncheon was late. Well satisfied with the morning's experience, I had a ravenous appetite, and thought the rice and frijoles excellent. I found, in course of time, that an appetite was the most difficult feature connected with the full appreciation of this ration. As the attendant brought the pans up, he stooped and picked up something from the threshold. What is this? he asked. It was a piece of shell that had struck the door and fallen. I put it in my box, and asked him if my men were all right. He said they were, but that five men had been wounded in the morrow. Footnote. I learned afterward that two of these men died. As to the firing on the morrow, I was informed by the admiral, after exchange, that he had directed the morrow to be spared, believing that the prisoners were there. Apparently the gunners simply could not resist such a target. My men told me afterward that as soon as the bombardment began, the Spaniards hoisted a big Spanish flag on the lightning rod over my cell, 
which my men could see from their cell. The regular flagpole is on the other side of the fort, and so far as I could learn, a flag had not been hoisted on the lightning rod before and was not afterward. Evidently, the shots that kept passing over my head were efforts to bring down the flag, and it was probably one of those that killed the men. End of footnote. It appeared to me as rather singular that the Moro should not have been taken up as a principal target. Perhaps the other work had been enough for one time, and the Moro was reserved for another. Thinking over the matter during luncheon, I determined to make a protest against our retention in the Moro, and with the pencil and part of the paper left by the judge, wrote an official letter to General Linares, protesting against such abuse, particularly when he had informed the American admiral that we had been removed and I sent a similar letter to the British Consul, adding that personally the experience of the forenoon had been interesting and valuable. The afternoon passed. Toward sunset a shot was fired from the eastern battery, and the garrison rushed out. But it was a false alarm. The sea in the caverns, which had all along made weird rumblings, resounded like the shock of a heavy projectile, and again and again until I went to sleep, there would be the startling sensation of reopening the bombardment, which each time would require the reassurance of my reason that it was only the sea. About ten or eleven o'clock my door was thrown open, and an officer appeared in boots and spurs, covered with mud, showing under the dim light carried by an orderly. I have come, he said, from General Linares, who has directed that the prisoners be transferred to Santiago to start at daylight tomorrow morning. Very well, I replied. Have my men informed, and we shall be ready. The general wishes you to understand, however, the officer continued, that this action is not due to your protest of this afternoon. I did not reply, but smiled to myself as the officer left. End of Part 3, Section 3